We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Aikman is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. Newton steps up, goes for the end zone. Olsen, touchdown! Brian Burns to the house! And it is caught for the touchdown by Moore. And in the foot race, McCaffrey to the end zone. Keep pounding on three! One, two, three! Keep pounding! Welcome back to another episode of The Roar, brought to you by Blue Wire. I am your host, Billy Marshall, and as always, joined by my co-host, John Ellis. John, what's going on? What's up, man? Made it through another draft season. It was was a normal draft season, that's for sure. I didn't find anything to be too exhaustive, even though the rumors were... uh, There were some crazy rumors out there, like they usually are, but I would say overall a productive weekend for the Carolina Panthers. I didn't do anything reckless like you and I were worried about. Uh, We'll get into some of the deals that they did make. Uh, They eventually traded a third in 2023 for Matt Corral, um, and we'll look back at their day three selections uh, but first, uh, it wouldn't be a draft without the Carolina Panthers, you know, staying patient to their board, and uh, they just let everything in front of them happen, and they were rewarded with North Carolina State offensive tackle Ikem Ikwanu, a Charlotte native, played at North Carolina State, a very physical run blocker, and he has a lot of upside as a pass blocker as well. I'll get into my thoughts on the player in a second, um, but I just got to kind of want to give everyone a glimpse into when I thought this would be a possibility. When I heard Jake Glazer um, kind of give his idea that, hey, there's going to be two corners taken in the top four. And I kind of had an idea that Stingley was going to go in the top four to Houston, or at least three to Houston. I thought New York was going to take either Edge or potentially Iquano. So when they passed, and then even the Giants passed, um, I mean, that made everything just come into fruition, and Iquano is a Carolina Panther. Yeah, I mean, look, it was a fascinating set of events that went down in round one. I mean, you look back at 
how this all transpired. I'm sure in the course of this show we can discuss some of the some of the source information that, that that I've got, but also we've heard from guys like Glazer and others about how this all fell into their lap. But you know, Trevon Walker ends up going first overall, and that was picking up steam. And then Aiden Hutchinson, you know, logically goes to Detroit. And really, really, as I told people on draft night, the the key to all this was going to be the Jets, really, because if they had strayed from going offensive tackle, and in my mock, it's like throwing darts again. I'm not using intel here. I'm just thinking, you know, in my mind, what they might do. I had them taking Stingley. I had Gardner going to the Texans. So I did have that one of two combinations, which were going to be good combinations for the Panthers transpiring. And what that did, it slid Thibodeau. It was either going to slide Thibodeau into Carolina's lap, which would have been great trade leverage, or would have put him in the Giants' corner at five. And really, when it came to that dynamic, the Giants had a no-brainer, I think, because they liked Neal, they liked Aquano, they liked Cross. So get the edge guy now so Carolina doesn't have that leverage to maybe trade with, say, the Eagles and give the division rival there Thibodeau for the Giants. So it, it fell perfectly. Had it gone the other way, had there been an early run on tackles, Billy, I think what would have happened, what could have happened is you could have still had Cross there at six, and they liked him. And I think you you were very vocal about his skill set. I think you liked him too. But they could have possibly leveraged that, like I said earlier, into a deal with you know a team like Baltimore or Philadelphia that is sort of edge hungry. But it worked out. And Akeem is you know a tremendous player. Uh, I think you know we talked with Matt Bowen last week. He had Neil as his best player in the draft, but he was very high on Aquano. And I think you and I both agree he's got tremendous versatility great power, maybe gets ahead of his feet a little bit in pass protection, but they'll work on that. And I just, I thought it worked out just magically for them in terms of the first six picks. That first hour of the draft was really, really fun to watch. Yeah, actually, I thought the first hour was pretty chalky as far as like what players are expected to go where. I didn't really find anything too shocking. Uh, It was at, you know, picks 11 to 20 when things really started to pick up that trade uh, the Saints trading up to get a Lave, and then things just completely went off the rails with, uh, you know, just the trades, and then uh, AJ Brown getting traded. Yeah, it was just completely chaos at that point. Uh-huh. But uh, credit to Carolina for staying patient. And many of you know, and I'm still of a very strong believer that I believe in volume when it comes to drafting. Um, but my philosophy remains the same; it, it doesn't change. Uh, at, at this point, it's a make or break year for this head coach. Um, and given the lack of resources at that, you know, on day two of the draft, just get the blue chip talent in Iquanu in the building and then figure it out from there in the future. Because, yeah, as optimistic as people are about this draft, and it was a pretty productive draft, they still have uh, questions surrounding the quarterback. And we'll get into Corral later, like I said. Um, and we'll just get into the outlook of this team. We'll have plenty of months to dissect where they're going. Uh, but for me, I just thought, you know what, just get the blue chip player in Iquanu. And then next year and the year after, let's start to really kind of figure out uh, a long-term vision that is supplemented by uh, volume drafting, uh, such as trading down and picking up additional day two picks. Uh, but for this draft, I was fine with it. And just my analysis of Iquanu, I, I just think he's he's certainly the best run blocker out of the big three. I personally had Evan Neal 
uh, over him. Uh, but I, I thought Tim Cross and uh, and obviously Iquano, I thought those three, they were all in the same tier and just dependent on what you wanted. And I don't have any reservations as far as uh, some of the concerns that he has in pass protection. And I think those are, uh, I think those can be, I don't want to say they can be taught or they can be improved, but I, I certainly don't. I l- was listening to like guys like Brandon Thorne and Duke Mayweather and those guys know offensive line play, and they don't see it as huge concerns because he did play left guard uh, for a couple years before moving back to left tackle. So he, it's not like he's been, um, you know, a full-time left tackle during his entire tenure at, at NC State, right. unlike Cross. Uh, Cross was like just a left tackle throughout uh but but for me i just, i think he is he's strong he's powerful he has the uh, the frame and the arm length you want and he's just he plays with heavy hands and he has a core strength to generate power and force he has the mobility and balance uh, and i think he functions as a really high level run blocker not only in gap schemes but also zone as well uh and you can see his competitiveness and his just his nastiness the way he uh, gets out in space and locates his target and just completely has like no uh, reservation for her uh, yeah. for the player. Uh, so I, I do think that the issues can be coached. Um, and I am optimistic that this off coaching staff, um, at least this offensive line coach Campman uh, can, you know, help him improve such as getting his hands and his feet in sync um, and also being able to uh, fix the issues when it comes to oversetting a little too much. Yeah, I agree with that. I think a couple things about Aquano from a scouting perspective, uh, and you hear this a lot from other people too, but you mentioned the gap scheme and, and as well as zone, and that's what they ran at NC State was the zone, and he was very effective in that. But he can also do the power stuff as well. And I think if you listen to McAdoo and you know a little bit about what he's done in the past, I mean, he'll he'll tailor what he wants to do around his personnel. He's pretty flexible in terms of how he develops his schematics. So he's not necessarily boxed in like a Shanahan in terms of, oh, it's, it's going to be wide zone, you know, play action boot off of that all the time. There's no real identity to what McAdoo does. And I think that's actually a positive here because he can take – a guy like Aquanu, and do what he does best, tailor the offense around his guys. And I think also you, you mentioned the nasty streak he has. He does finish people. I mean, it's a lot like Taylor Moten in that regard. When you watch his tape, he plays through the whistle. And what I love about Aquanu, and, you know, Matt Bowen had talked to us about this, and I think Bowen had talked about, you know, a tone setter, a guy that can really infect the entire line in a positive way in terms of infusing that attitude. And and those are things I look at, too, in terms of an identity. We brought this up on the pod with Matt, you know, a guy that can come in, and not that Neil couldn't. I I certainly see him as that type of guy, too. Cross, I think, is a little less refined in the run game, but certainly a great technician in the pass game. But if you want a guy that can just absolutely intimidate the opponent, even at the NFL game, if you get him at left tackle – and he develops, he can be a high-level player, maybe even all-pro type of guy for maybe eight, nine, ten years for you. If he stays healthy, that's always a big if. And the fallback with him, whereas you can't do this with like cross necessarily, is if it doesn't work out a tackle, you probably got yourself a, an all-pro level guard for that same span of time. So we use that word versatility a lot, but in this case, it really does come into play. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now you're looking at a situation where you have, you know, you have to feel good about the offensive line. You have Iquanu, the expected left tackle, uh, left guard. I think a little more questions, but I, I believe Christensen can play there. Uh, I think we know that Corbett or both, or at least Bozeman, the center, uh, Corbett, right guard, and Moten, uh, right tackle. So, and then you have some depth behind the two with Irving and Elfline. Uh, yep. So it, it's a pretty, uh, I would say, outside of Iquanu and Christensen, it's a pretty experienced unit. Uh, a lot of upside now to this offensive line where uh, last year it was, like Matt said, construction on I-85. <laughs> it was the, that was a great quote by Matt, the, the I-85 line. And I remember when that quote came out and we posted it, but it was very true. I mean, I was there at camp and we looked at it every day. Well, like, you know, Stanley McClover was there and he was watching his baby brother, Brian Burns, just shred, uh, what's his name? Cam Irving in one-on-ones. And then right away we can, you know, Stanley's played the game. So he knows a thing or two about what he's looking at. You know, we kind of, we're just shaking our heads like, oh, this is, this is not going to be good, Billy. This is going to be a problem. And I think when the injuries mounted up, it became even more apparent. But what you have now, yeah, a guy like Irving's okay. If he's in a swing tackle type of role or in a position to be a situational guy. If you need to kick him inside, maybe he can play guard if somebody gets hurt. That's where you want a Cam Irving guy. You know, if he's going to be on the roster, you want him to be a guy that you can rely on situationally, maybe 6-0 line, that jumbo XL they might run once in a while. You know Matt wants to run the ball, so they'll do that from time to time. But I think, to your point, like let's say Aquano, like, you know, God willing, they all stay healthy, but you know in the NFL they rarely do. If Aquano gets nicked or goes down – you can move Christensen now to left tackle because he's got some tape on there and he's done a pretty decent job and he's done it in college. And then Bozeman's played guard. You can always move him out to left guard. And then Elfline's right there as a a serviceable center. So they're in a much better position this year, at least from a framework perspective, starting out into camp. Yeah. And and that's what you want. And I think, you know, a guy like yourself who does go to camp, I think the competition between, you know, the offensive line, defensive line should be much more uh, balanced this year. But, yeah, I think that it's not even just about the versatility to me. I, I think that if you have, like, you know, your top five, whatever it is, and that, I mean, switch Christensen for Elfline um, or whatever, I think you can feel good about this offensive line going into uh, the 2022 season. So there's, like we said on a previous episode, there's much more competency to this unit than there was last year. And I think that goes a long way. No one's going to excuse them uh, to be one of the better units in the league, uh, but they certainly have talent and reliability there uh, from this unit where in years past they didn't. Uh, So credit to them. Again, you know, my philosophy has always been, you know, trade downs and try to pick up some more draft assets. But this year, given that Matt is in a make-or-break year, and uh, I just felt like just take the blue-chip talent and then we'll figure out you know the long-term uh, profile and philosophy of this team next year. And uh, let's fast-forward now to day two of the draft, and th- this has been a, a year um, where I think a lot of people expected the quarterbacks to drop. I mean, none of them really stood out to me. Kenny Pickett, I know he went in the first round. Uh you know, good for him. I think he's in a pretty good situation there in Pittsburgh. They've drafted two really good 
pass catchers, Pickens and Austin, and they already have Deontay Johnson, Claypool, Najee Harris, decent offensive line. So I think he's going into a good situation. Um, And for this team, I don't necessarily think they have, uh, you know, a similar uh, roster. And especially they don't have a similar culture to Pittsburgh where Pittsburgh has never had a losing season under Mike Tomlin. So uh, I thought Carolina did pretty well to stay patient on day too, because we've seen in the past, John, Marty Herney for a couple years in 2009, 2010, um, he traded like future picks. I think it was 2010 where he traded up like a future two to uh, go grab Clawson. And that second, that second rounder became pick 33 the next year because they finished with the worst record in the NFL in 2010. So, I mean, that's a pretty valuable pick. Um, I don't know where Carolina is going to be, but even if they do have the worst record in the league and they're picking at 65, I'm not a fan of it. But again, given where this team is, I think the options were, you know, veteran market or rookie. Um, I will give you my thoughts on Corral in a second, but I just want to hear your thoughts on their decision to go with the rookie over a Mayfield or Garoppolo. And do you think, that takes them out of the veteran QB market now. Yeah, well, I think for now it does. Uh, I think the Mayfield thing was fascinating, you know, from talking to people during that lead up there, you know, and you and I had spoken with Jonathan Alexander about this from the observer. And, and he was pretty adamant that at some point week one, he felt strongly that first of all, he, said all along, and I think we all agree that Kenny Pickett or, or nobody really quarterback-wise was going to go at six, so there's that. But uh, furthering that point, I I still think Garoppolo is somebody they'll monitor just based on his medicals. That's something they'll take their time with, and there's going to have to be a, you know an understanding if indeed that does get to a point where they have a conversation about it. Another guy – I don't mean to cut you off, but even uh, I just want to get your thoughts. Nick Foles, I mean, he was just released yesterday. I've got thoughts on that. Yeah, I've got thoughts, uh, definitely thoughts on that. Garoppolo, they'd have to eat some of that salary. You know, long story short, that's going to have to be something they do. So whether that happens or not, I don't know. I saw, I think it was Albert Breer today was talking about the Baker thing. And I can tell you from talking to somebody on Friday night, yeah, they they were talking. But I I felt that Scott was – doing a good job of leveraging both sides there because, you know, he was trying to squeeze the best possible deal for Mayfield that he could based on the fact these quarterbacks were falling. And Cleveland at that point understood, hey, you know, Carolina, maybe the urgency here for us is those quarterbacks they like are moving closer and closer to their fourth-round spot. So maybe we need to hurry up and make a deal with Carolina. Uh, My understanding is, and we've seen this reported as well since, that there was just not an agreement on the salary reduction side of things. So Scott wisely, I think, pivoted back to, okay, what can we do? They found a good trade partner in New England. And, I, you know, to me, the value, I don't know yet. I mean, we don't know, Billy. We just don't know if it's going to end up being a high-value pick or not. We can grade it in advance and say, okay, I'll give them an A-plus on this, B-plus on this. But I don't think they gave up an egregious amount. They would have had they tried to do it sooner, obviously. But – if Corral ends up being a guy that can start in this league, it's a good trade. You know, if it doesn't work out, hey, it doesn't work out, and you're out of a third rounder, just like they were with C.J. Henderson. Those are two guys to watch, I think, moving forward. If Henderson and Corral can develop into top-line guys, that would be 
a pretty good business by Scott Fitter. But now it comes down to the coaching. With Corral, I just, you know, we, we've done the tape on him. You looked at plenty of stuff on Matt. And, you know, I was talking to Anish Shroff, who, you know, covers the Panthers now play-by-play, play, but he also does a lot of work with ESPN. And we were talking before the draft about some of the games he did with Ole Miss and how much tempo there is to what they do. But on top of that, you know the book on Corral. I mean, it's RPO. It's short area acumen, throwing to a spot. He's got good off-platform acumen. He can, you know, throw from every platform. I, You know, I heard Cosell talking about this. He's a little short, not Russell Wilson short, but he's got a quick compact release, and the ball comes out a little low, and that might be a problem for a guy that's not 6'4", 6'5". But other than that, I mean, I think he's got the traits that McAdoo likes. You saw the clip, you know, McAdoo talking about the RPO stuff before the draft. I mean, I think, to me, just I got the sense that he was right there at the top of their board in terms of quarterbacks. So I think they ended up for them, you know, if you want to grade the draft as a whole, that's fine. I don't hate the draft grade analysis. Do what you want and make you money. But I, I don't do that because, like, to me, you got to understand what each team really wants and what each team values. And I think they had a high value on Corral based on their visits with him, based on conversations they had with the guy. And, and you know, the Ian Rappaport narrative, that that was disgusting. <laughs> you pointed that out to me on Saturday, and I was like, oh, God, about his de- struggles with depression and then tying it into alcohol. And, look, they met with him. They understand he's had challenges. They'll work on that moving forward. Nick Foles is interesting because, you know, you saw him with Chip Kelly. And you saw him back with Doug Peterson, and there were some RPO elements to what he did. And he's a good leader. He's a good guy, I think, in terms of bringing in as a vet. If they weren't on the hook for Darnold, I'd do it today. I mean, I, I wouldn't blink, and I'd just I'd do it because I think he's a guy that could come in and give you the right type of cultural mindset that you need to, to tutor a guy like Corral. Uh, I just don't know if they'll do it with Sam at $18 million on the roster, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I think it's going to be interesting to see how everything plays out. But, I mean, they still have quite a bit of cap room to absorb a guy like Foles. Uh, and, again, it's just – I just think you have to take your lumps, at, you know, in 2022 and just, you know, keep Darnold on the roster or whatever. Even if you cut him, I mean, it is what it is at this point. You have to just eat that $18 million. And Again, you know, cap space is not an issue for this team. You know, my my thing with Corral is that you, you know he he obviously he played a, there. The RPO game was a significant part of the old Miss offense, and I think it takes projection to determine if he can play, um, you know, within an NFL scheme. Uh, but he does get the ball out quickly. He has plenty of twitch to his feet. He can escape guys from the pocket. He sh- he's shown good mobility, but you know that's that's where it's going to come you know the questions are going to come he doesn't have the you know ideal height and he can be a little too reckless running the ball uh but i mean he's a competitor i mean he 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 seems like he goes out there and he just competes one after the other Uh, i do like his arm strength he has you know a very good arm uh you know that touchdown he threw against arkansas uh you know just he had um, you know, impressive arm strength, and I think that that's one thing that you know works out well. But within the McAdoo offense, a lot of quick games, slant, flat concepts. I think that you know that works well within his skill set. Uh, yeah, the other thing I'll say this is um, 
I do like Kral, but I also liked Will Greer a few years ago. And I do think there are some similarities to their game as far as like the offenses they came from. Uh, Greer played more in an air raid offense at West Virginia. Uh, but if you're talking about, you know, both guys were highly recruited quarterbacks coming out. Uh, uh, believe they, you know, went through like the process and they finally found, you know, a good environment for them. Uh, both of them, obviously, third rounders. And they have very similar like traits. I don't under, I don't think it's a knock to compare them to Will Greer, uh, but that's just one of the things you have to keep in mind. Corral's a third rounder for a reason. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know, at this stage, let's allow the competition to go through and let's see what happens. But um, you know, that's sort of my evaluation of him. I would have been fine if a team took him in the second round, but. Uh, by no means is he a guy that can just come in and start right away. Uh, I do think, you know, Darnold will probably have the upper hand at camp, uh, but I wouldn't be shocked if Corral is starting early in the year. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit. I don't want to give anybody any bad vibes, um, and I'm not comparing him to Clawson at all. But it, it, I, on the worst case scenario, it, you know, it would end up being like what 2010 was, where Matt Moore was your incumbent and everybody was clamoring, let's see the young guy and they throw him in too early because they kind of had to because Matt got hurt and it just was not good. And they had a good roster, Bill. I mean, they had some good players on that team. It was just they didn't have the quarterback. So to me, I, I think you got to be cautious. You're right. With Will Greer comparison in terms of not just, you know, not necessarily their style of play, but they're where they were drafted. I mean, it's a fourth round uh, moving up to a third round situation there in terms of picking. And you just, you got to be careful about, okay, I know we like the Jersey swaps and the the highlight reels and all that, um, but he's not going to come right in and dazzle the league. He's going to have to take a little bit of time. And as far as the stuff, and this is what scout told me about him is you need to throw out some of the tape. This is why I haven't posted the clips of him trucking people. It's irrelevant because none of that stuff is going to be relevant in the pro game. I mean, if it is relevant, he's going to be on the injured reserve by week two. He won't, Billy, he won't let you got guys out there like Fred Warner and others that will just blow him up at the second level. Yeah, I mean, come on. You think Levante David and Devin White are going to fall for that? No, no, no. You've got to. And he knows, I think he knows that he gets, I mean, look, I think you sit him down in a room and a, a good example of somebody who did a great job of this two guy and Sean Ryan coached this guy was Deshaun Watson, but also Russell Wilson, show them or show Matt some of that tape. And I'm sure they've already done some of this or Matt's done it on his own. Maybe. Okay. At the pro game, how you preserve yourself, run smart, get out of bounds, get to the boundary, get down, slide, I know we talked about that with Newton, but Newton was Julius Peppers playing quarterback. He could play the power game with efficiency. But for folks who are expecting Corral to come in and be, you know, a QB power, QB counter type of guy, eight, nine carries a game design, no, they're not going to scheme that up. They're, they're going to rely on his athleticism when things do break down. And he will take off. I mean, you, you'll see it early on, it, maybe even too early. <clears throat> but his game is, you know, as you talk about, Quick, efficient, spot-throwing, RPO, uh, one read. He's going to have to get better about looking to the backside and, and progressing, but that's something you can teach, and that's something that takes time. And that's where I think bringing in somebody like Foles or Garoppolo w- would get would accelerate the process because you're not only bringing in somebody who's 
worked under that or under those principles, but also some veteran experience to compete. And he needs competition. I don't know if Sam is the high level competitor going against Matt that's going to elevate his game to the degree as a veteran would. So we'll see. And not that Sam's not a veteran. He's just not a very good one. Yeah, I agree. I think Fultz is a pretty realistic option. Um, I mean, he did start last year. He went into Seattle and won the Bears a game uh, there. So I still think that he can provide, um, you know, that veteran leadership and also just the, um, you know, a guy who is a functional NFL quarterback. And I think he's obviously much better than Darnold. So we'll we'll see. I, I hope that they aren't trading any assets away for a guy like, um, Garoppolo. If they get Garoppolo, I just hope that they, you know, wait it out and you know, make. I mean, maybe he's released. I think that's probably the best option. But I don't. I, want... I don't think they. Sh- I mean, if, if now that Foles is out there, I mean, I think that gives them a little bit of leverage because I, I don't even know who they like or who they don't like. I know they they've looked at Garoppolo, they've looked at Mayfield, but one would assume that you know Foles would would catch their eye at least for a minute, just based on. The fact that not all pros are created equal, I get that, but he's he's run similar concepts and he's he good he good guy to work under. He's he's universally looked at as like the ultimate consummate pro. Whereas Jimmy Field, there's questions about that. Garoppolo viewed the same as Foles. The teammates love him, but uh, you know we'll see what happens. Yeah, and uh, Foles when he was in Philly uh, and Matt was at uh, coaching at Temple, um, you know, Rule gave him some pretty rave reviews. So uh, I'll be curious to see if that connection uh, if there is any uh, comes yeah. into light all right day three uh they had four picks at the time uh, and then they traded up uh, both of their fifth round picks for a fourth round and they got a sixth round back so a uh, pretty good trade overall because they kept the same amount of picks for a trade up and i think washington kind of traded up from their previous sixth round to the fifth round so washington ended up with two fifth rounds in carolina um they eventually got two six rounders but uh, fourth round, Brandon Smith, uh, linebacker from Penn State. I mean, he is very athletic. I mean, you, you talk about a guy who has the measurables and the combination of size, length, and movement, and he plays with very effective lateral quickness. I mean, he, the way he slides into gaps to make tackles in a run game was impressive. I mean, he showed the play speed and the range to play inside and out. I mean, he's explosive sideline to sideline. Um, you know, that Penn State defense under Brent Pry last year, who's now the head coach at Virginia Tech, um, you know, a lot of different pattern matching concepts, whether it's zone or man. And Smith did a pretty good job of matching with tight ends and wide receivers. I just think he has the length and the, um, you know, the athleticism to match up with whoever he's going up against, whether it's a tight end or uh, linebacker. And I think he's a much better fit for them than Jermaine Carter. Uh, who I believe he's going to replace. Uh, so, you know, there there are some issues on the field. He did show some inconsistencies, you know, at times getting off blocks. And, you know, I think he needs to work on, uh, you know, how he does in a run game. Uh, you know, Jermaine Carter, I think he was much better, you know, in, in the box as far as uh, just his ability to get off blocks. Uh, but as, as far as like the upside as a, in coverage and as a run defender, I think, excuse me, I think his upside as a run defender is much greater just given his length. Uh, but right now he doesn't really show that. Uh, but I think that he can in time and I'm a pretty big fan of this pick. 
Yeah, I am too. I mean, uh, the first thing I did, and I remember Brandon playing a little bit at Penn State just from watching some college ball vaguely. I and mean, one of the clips is when they played Idaho and they were winning 79 to 7, I think it was. And he's still out there blowing guys up. And, and you know, that just shows you what his mindset is. I think he was, if I recall, he and I, I read this in Dane Brugler's uh, Guide the Beast, which is you can find it on The Athletic. But if I remember from reading that, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he was the number one Mike backer in that recruiting class of the, like 2019. Yeah, he was a five-star. Yeah, so he he was he came in with with of course a high grade from that level, and I think you're right. I mean, they love athletes. I mean, this is we talked about this last year. They they the the RAS scores. I mean, they they go right to that chart in a lot of ways and just size up what he can do in terms of the forty. He ran like a four five uh, at the combine. I think he's got great arm length. I mean, I think he's thirty four plus on the arms. And he's what is he six three two forty five two fifty? I mean, he's he's a big guy, yep. six four, I think. So he's got great power, great explosion. But you're right. I mean, there's some things from a processing perspective he'll need to work on to get ahead of it. He's played Sam. He's played Mike. He's played the wheelbacker position. So he's played every position at that second level, and he's got good production. I mean, 132 tackles in his career there. 81 last season, forced a couple fumbles. Uh, he did deflect a, a few passes, one of which led to an interception in a game when you look at the tape. And uh, he racked up, I think, 14 tackles for losses. Uh, so he's he's got a pretty decent track record. And I thought this is pretty good value for where they got him. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, um, you know, for what they needed. I mean, they needed an off-ball linebacker. And, uh, you know, taking one in the fourth round makes a lot more sense than – um, you know, in the first round. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of upside with them, and he can uh, definitely contribute on special teams as well. Uh, he went to, or at least he was, he's been, like, uh, friends with Yachir Gross Matos for a while. I think they grew up in, obviously they went to Penn State together, but I think they also had uh, connections in high school as well because both of them are from Virginia. Uh, all right, next pick uh, in the sixth round, uh, they took Amari Barno uh, from Virginia Tech, another really athletic pass rusher. He just started in uh, 2021, I believe, this past year. He just transitioned to the edge. Before that, he was more of an off-ball linebacker. Um, but you see the explosiveness and the you know the speed on it and the athleticism on film. I mean, he has a really good quick first step. Um, I mean, he shows the flexibility in the bend to dip, uh, keep the body control when offensive linemen get hands on him so he's not like falling off balance each time. Um, and you talk about a rotational pass rusher. I mean, sh- certainly he's not, you know, at the level of a guy that needs, that's ready to step in and uh, contribute on all three downs. But if you're talking about pass rush and juice off the edge, uh, th- that's certainly your guy. I mean, 4 3 six, 40, one of the fastest for an edge player. Um, it, it shows up on film, and I think he's going to be a pretty good addition to uh, that pass rushing package that Phil Snow likes to throw out there on third downs. Yeah, I really do. I mean, the, you, you, we talk about the word twitch. I mean, this is twitch city right here. He is the ultimate twitch guy. I mean, it, we saw the combine, what he did. I mean, he ran a sub one five ten 10-yard split. He was four three six in the 40. Uh, so you you get some vibes there when you see that in terms of athleticism. Needs to put on some weight at some point, probably, if he wants to hold up in the run game. 
Uh, I mean, he's uh, the, the metrics on him right now, 6'4 and a half, 246. Uh, you maybe want to try to add a little bit of bulk without sacrificing some of that explosion. I think they can do that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's raw, as you said. He comes in with, you know, some good production uh, from from Virginia Tech, but not, you know, eye-popping production. He had, he had a pretty good 2020, actually, at six and a half sacks, 16 tackles for loss. I mean, he was all over the field. Uh, honorable mention all ACC that year. And uh, he last year, I mean, look, you know, that you put on the tape when I've done a little bit of this with him, just got to get a little bit stronger there in terms of lower body ability to hold up against that leverage when you get to the pro game. But yeah, situationally, I like it a lot. I mean, I think it's a guy that when you're talking about what Matt Rule wants, it's obviously high level, athletic, twitchy guys. And I think Scott's in alignment with that coming from Seattle. So yeah, I mean, not I'm not hating this one. He's a Blythewood, South Carolina kid too. So it's again, they they've gone Aquano, who's local, Blythewood with Amari or Mari Barno, who's fairly local, and and that's pretty cool too. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, another sixth round pick, uh, Carolina, after passing on a Tennessee interior offensive lineman last year, uh, they. <laughs> Do draft one this year, Cade Mays. Uh, I like this pick again. Um, I thought he, he stood out to me at the Senior Bowl. Uh, he has quite a bit of versatility. I remember at the Senior Bowl, he was playing center, and obviously he played right guard uh, for the Volunteers. And, I mean, he had he also played right tackle. And so you talk about the positional versatility, like we mentioned when we were going off over the offensive line. Uh, this guy provides it. I mean, he has pretty, you know, quick hands. He has, you know, decent feet. He's pretty nasty in the run game. You know, still some work to do maybe in the pass game, especially when he's getting, you know, into a set. He can get, um, you know, beaten uh, by quicker three techniques. Uh, but you know, he's a developmental sixth round uh, interior offensive lineman. Uh, he we shouldn't confuse him with the guy like. You know, Kenyon Green or Zion Johnson, those guys went in the top 20 for a reason. Um, but for where they got him, again, a guy that can develop and potentially, you know, help this team down the road. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, I think the versatility word comes back in mind here because, you know, he spent some time at Georgia, moved on to Tennessee. And if you look at his total breakdown of starts here, 18 at right guard, 13 at right tackle, two at left guard, two at left tackle. That's via Dane Brugler, by the way. And I think that's a pretty good thing to look at. He was predominantly right tackle throughout the uh, course of last season. In fact, he was exclusively there. Second team all SEC, which is nothing to sneeze at. Um, he did have some injuries, but he's got a good frame. He's got the kind of frame you're looking for, for a guy that you want to plug in, six four and a half, three ten, And – when you compete at a high level in the SEC, that says something, I think. He's got some things you can do in terms of moving him around. Obviously, we talked about having, you know, like Bozeman there at center who can play guard. Elfline can swap and do both as well. Christensen can play guard, tackle. Uh, hell, even Cam Irving can play guard. So now you've got another guy here who's played every position but center in college and all in the SEC, which, again, like when you're playing in the SEC, you're going against NFL linemen every week. So I think that says something. Yeah, he did actually play pretty well against Georgia, if you want to turn on that tape. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, like I said, he did take snaps at the Senior Bowl uh, at center. Um, so if you want to go back and watch practice tape of that, uh, it'll be interesting to see if 
how that can translate for him. Uh, final pick of the draft, seventh rounder, Baylor. Matt gets one of the guys he recruited, so it wouldn't be a draft without a Baylor player. Right. Um, Boogie Barnes, Kalen Barnes. And uh, he ran, I believe, one of the fastest 40 times at the Combine. Shouldn't be a surprise. He won two Texas high school state titles in the 100 and 200. Uh, he ran 10.04 in the 100 as a senior. And I believe he also ran track at Baylor. Uh, so he certainly has a straight line speed. The funny thing about him is his three cone was one of the worst uh, among all cornerbacks. Uh, so you're maybe, I don't know, like on film, he looked fine. I didn't really notice the issues with his um, change of direction uh, with the three cone, especially because I think that kind of measures a change of direction skills. But I mean, the seventh round, I mean, if you, get a guy who can run this fast you take it uh, maybe he contributes on special teams uh and in the return game but uh, i certainly think he has a lot of work to do before he's starting uh on defense but again at this point in the draft take some guys that you're familiar with you know i don't really care that he went to baylor but you know the speed hey that i mean you can never go wrong with taking guys who run fast 40s no, I mean, look, you're picking 242 here. You look at the history of what what goes on in the 200s. It, it's you're you're oftentimes getting a special team or ace at best. Maybe you steal a starter out of that round. So I think that with that in mind, it's it's not a bad idea, you know. And and there's something to be said, you know. We we tease Matt a lot here, but to be fair, I think you and I can agree that there, you know having some familiarity with a guy doesn't hurt. And he's you know five eleven, one eighty five ish. And he's got, you know, that four two three that opened everybody's eyes there in Indianapolis. I mean, that was pretty, pretty impressive. But yeah, I think when you look at, you know, some of the cornerback positional things he's gonna have to work on there, obviously he's gonna have to learn how to be a little more consistent there in terms of reading, you know, what's in front of him in terms of technique. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. I haven't done a lot of work on Barnes here. But I just know some of the framework of what he offers gives you the ability, much like one of their undrafted guys from Penn State. I forget his name. Drew, I believe, is his first name, who ran that insane 40 at his pro day. Um, Barnes gives you that ability to have somebody on coverage in a special teams capacity right away that can get down the field quick. And, and that, that's important in today's game where you have – in the kickoff game and the punt game, you've had some rule changes there in terms of what you can and cannot do. You got to have guys with speed to get down there and, and cover the track. So, I mean, it's, it's a fine pick. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with the new punter Hecker, he obviously has a strong leg. Uh, yeah. So as long as you have guys who can you know, get down the field quickly and help, you know, change field positions, I think that's a positive. Um, so now moving on to undrafted free agency, uh, the guy you were talking about, the safety from Penn State, Drew Hartlob. Uh, I, I didn't really get to see much of him. Uh, a few guys that did catch my eye, Charleston Rambo from Miami, a talented receiver. I mean, a lot of fans in the ACC probably remember him. Uh, and then another receiver from the ACC, Rayshon Henry from UVA. I think he's going to be a guy that can really stand out in, in training camp. Uh, I think he's, he's a pretty talented guy. Uh, and then John Lovett, uh, running back from Penn State, kind of shared, um, you know, the rotation there. I think he has some upside, you know, as a, a back that probably didn't get as much notoriety uh, for the Nittany line. So, 
again, with all these guys, they're going to have to come in, compete, go through the process of OTAs, mini camp, and then training camp and preseason games. Uh, shouldn't be much expected of them, but you know, just a, a pretty solid unit, and uh, you, you never know. I mean, one of these guys might really, you know, catch their eyes and play well, and then you know, he's starting by week one. Yeah. Well, with a team like Carolina that, you know, they're they're putting together a decent framework for their roster now, but they're still young in a lot of spots. You just never know. And, and I like adding the receivers. I do, because we don't know what's going to happen with Robbie Anderson. I think Charles Robinson had threw it out there, and I, I saw Josh Norris, you know, suggesting this as well, based on Charles's reporting that, you know, Robbie could still be a post-June 1st move. So, it's never a bad idea to load up on young guys. And, and Shai Smith, of course, unfortunately, was arrested this offseason, and I don't know what his status is going to be, but that's something to monitor as well. And we're like Charleston Rambo, I, I like it a lot because he's got that dog mentality. I mean, we had saw a clip of him over the weekend where he's at the combine. He's got the Texas Chainsaw Massacre tattoo, and he's talking about how he wants to just maul anybody in front of him. That's all fine and well. But, you know, I look at three years of starting for Oklahoma and Miami. That's that's high-level competition right there. Um, produced pretty well in the ACC last year. I saw him several times covering the ACC. He was, you know, around 100 yards for most of the games he played in. Um, aggressive guy, you know, does a good job in terms of competing. And then the other guys you mentioned, those are, those are high-level athletes as well. So, yeah, and then they had a quarterback from Elon – uh, Davis Cheek, who I know very little about, so I have to do some work on him. But you just never know. You're right. I mean, that's what undrafted season's for in terms of free agency. You just bring guys in, fortify your practice squad, hopefully, and then uh, one of them might hit. I mean, you saw Andrew Norwell, uh, one of the better guards in the league for a minute. You know, he was undrafted. So it's it's not impossible. Philly Brown, too. He Absolutely. Was, yeah, that, that, that Super Bowl team for Carolina had a few undrafted guys that – impacted that team at a high level so it was spot on um all right so now as we wrap up uh this draft class i just want to kind of get your thoughts on how everything shook down to me it seems like the front office led by scott fitter dan morgan uh pat stewart seems like they had a pretty big voice um this year and within their process Obviously, we know the reporting that Matt Rule has final say in roster decisions. Uh, I was listening also to the Jake Glazer, you know, broadcast uh, from Fox Sports Radio during the first round, and he he said that quarterback was an option for Carolina at six, but he also mentioned that cooler heads will prevail, uh, telling me that 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 kind of insinuated that the front office was the one. Uh, pushing for patience and not necessarily going all in on a quarterback at that position. Uh, so I kind of want to get your thoughts on just everything that was executed by um, you know, this team and the dynamics now between the front office, coaching staff, and owner. Yeah, I, I think they're taking shape now. I, I And we have talked about this numerous times, Billy, in terms of, you know, if you're going to keep Matt Rule, fair enough, but let him coach and start – putting more of the roster building on the people who have done it at a high level in the league for a while. Dan Morgan has been a part of this process in the league for Seattle, for Buffalo, now Carolina. Cole Spencer sort of new to the fray here in terms of public facing, but it was good to see him out talking to the media. And when you talk to scouts around the league, he's well-respected. So 
I think, you know, just from talking to somebody close to that situation about the the quarterback situation, it, it was kind of revealing in terms of, okay, you know what? Who wanted Pickett? Who wanted Corral? Who wanted none of them? And I was told this by somebody close to that operation, quote, it was a mix. Everyone had somebody different. Coaches like someone, scouts like someone, and higher-ups like someone. So who liked what? I don't know. But if indeed, if, if like Rule wanted Pickett, I mean, we've made that leap before because he recruited him, and we've seen the picture 40,000 times. Uh, there's also talk about David Tepper's infatuation with Pickett as well. I don't think there was ever a serious consideration at quarterback at six. I, I, I know Glazer says that, um, but he also, like you said, the cooler heads prevail. I, I think the cooler heads would be those of, of Scott Fitter or maybe Dan Morgan and most of their scouts. Because I can tell you this, that <laughs> not a lot of people I've talked to around that operation were really sold on this quarterback class, which leads me to believe that quarterback at six was kind of going to be a reach. So, Unless, like we had our biggest fear, I think you and I, for this the fan base out there, was they got impulsive and said, "Oh gosh, one tackle's gone now, two tackles gone. We've got to go get our quarterback right now, or we've got to you know trade up at some point above market value." And it, luckily for them, the quarterback slid back, and it's a good job by Fitter, who I think I I can say this with a pretty good sense of confidence: Fitter runs that draft room. He does. So whatever we say about Matt in terms of good, bad, whatever, he's been sort of moved back into where he should be. Head coach, CEO of the football team itself, run the team, install the plans, work with your staff on that. And he's got a much better staff this year, I think, than last year as a whole. And let Scott and Dan and the scouts do their work. And Tepper so far hasn't struck me as someone who has meddled too badly with that. So that's positive, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the MMQB that was released by Albert Breer kind of shed some light into the owner's process. And I kind of want to get um, your thoughts, not only on that, but kind of what Breer said. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I posted this uh, earlier today at One Panther Place and just pulling it up right now. Breer had outlined, and Breer is as well-sourced as anybody, so go with this. Uh, I'll read it out to you here. For most of that time, talking about, you know, leading up to the draft, Tepper had been in on those meetings over the phone. And with decision time coming, he'd come to Charlotte, huddled in a film room with the group to make final uh, what they discussed. The owner peppered his football people with probing questions, challenging them to make the smart, most well-thought-out decision possible. And in the end, it kept coming back to who the best players were. And from there, the sense you get, Billy, and that's Albert Brewer, by the way, uh, reporting from SI. The sense you get is that Morgan, Pat Stewart, Cole Spencer, and 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 heavily the scouts leading up, because how it generally works in draft rooms is it's very secretive that you know. Most area scouts get locked out of the room. I mean, it's like, okay, you know what? We've got our final board up here, essential personnel only. No knock on scouts, but it, that's how it works. So you keep your most essential people in the room. I didn't see much, and this is interesting too, Evan Cooper, who is still listed, I believe, as director of player evaluation as well as a DB coach. Remember last year, Billy, he was right there with Matt during the entire trial? I didn't see that this year. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I didn't see it. Well, let, let's see if they release Panthers Confidential this year. <laughs> yes, they, oh, they have to. Come on, man. You know Bill Voth. He, we talked to Billy a few times on this show, man. He, he's he's going to sauce that up. But 
I so far I I get the sense maybe that and that's not a knock on Evan. It's just that get your best football evaluating minds from the NFL level in that room, and I it seems like that's the direction they've headed in. So yeah, I think you know in terms of what Brewers reporting suggests here, um, and just my sense of knowing a few people around that building there. I mean it's it's been a better process than it started out as, and I think you can see. I mean let's say the first draft was Marty Herney and Matt Rule, and everybody trying to find their way. And then Scott comes in, but he hasn't had a chance to really install his program. And then you see some scouts that get re-signed after the draft last year, and they stay on board. And scouts generally get a, like a two-year deal to stay with teams. So I think they've got their scouts and their scouting department set for the short term now. And then Scott talked about this, installing a new, more advanced scouting program that's going to take effect this spring and go into next draft season. So that's fascinating too, which tells me, and and this is what you get a sense of when you, again, you talk to people in the know that Scott is really taking command of that side of the business, which is really, really smart, by the way. Yeah, because I just think the front office, they should have a more long-term view of the organization where coaching's, where coaching staffs, at least, they have much more of a short term. They're focused on week in and week out preparations, and uh, you know, trying to get the fifty-three man roster to win games every week. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they have much more of a short term mindset. Now, I'm not knocking that approach. I just think that you know the dichotomy between the two is is very interesting, and that's why you should always allow, oh, at least yeah. in my opinion, a front office to have much more of a um, you know of an effort with roster building. Well, Billy, just quickly to dovetail off that, some of the best football minds on the NFL level, NFL lifers like Mike Holmgren couldn't take on everything. They had to eventually either yield or fail with, with having control over the roster and putting together a winning football team as a coach. So to me, we, we have thrown some heat towards Matt Rule, but it's been earned. And I think part of that is on Tepper, too. And I, I like how they're, to me, reshaping the dynamics here because now we get an honest opportunity to see what Matt Rule can do as a football coach. Okay, and I'm going to be more than fair this year going in. This is it. And maybe it's not totally it, but I, I get the sense that this has to be a much better trajectory this season. I don't know how to define that. Playoffs, playoff win, nine wins, ten, I don't know. But there, you can't – keep falling from an EPA DVOA perspective or just a culture perspective on the back half of the season injuries, whatever that happens, but they have trended down every year since Matt been here. And in year three, we talk about Matt rule. This is where it's clicked in college. I've never bought into that translatable to the NFL game, but we'll find out. And now he gets an opportunity. And I, I, I think part of the reason, and this is just theorizing here that he's been absent from some of the public facing media stuff I would imagine that Tepper pretty much came to him and said, all right, you know what, look, we, we got to do something better here. I like you a lot. I really do. Let's take a step back. You just work with your coaches, get in the trenches, or as, as he says, the basement. That's what his new thing is, get in the basement. And work with McAdoo and Wilkes and these new guys and, and Tabor and Campin and, and and really gel that staff and get working. And, and let, let's let Scott do the talking. So you don't have to have that burden on you because he's not really good at that. And that's fine. Not a lot. I mean, Bill Belichick sucked at that. 
at the beginning. And then he formulated that into his persona now, which is say less. So I think it's a good opportunity for Matt here to really, and, and again, I'm theorizing here, maybe he still is very much involved in, in every aspect of what's going on in that building, including roster, but does he have total control? No, I don't think he does. Does he have quote final say? I think over certain things. Sure. He's paid a lot of money, but now it's time to go coach and uh, let's see what he does. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, throughout the upcoming summer months, we'll get into some projections of this team and where we see them going. Um, you know, there are some draft grades out there. Take it for whatever it's worth. I, to me, I don't really pay attention to them. Um, you know, I just yeah, let it I mean, be. I mean, it is what it is at this point. Um, I, I, I respect anyone who has to do a draft grade. It's content and people eat it up. Um, yeah. But for us, I really don't care. I know Carolina was ranked pretty highly by a few uh, different publications. Uh, right. And I think that's, you know, probably has to deal with the fact that, you know, they didn't really have as much assets as a team like the Jets, who I see it consistently as like a top draft, which, I mean, they should have a top draft. They had four picks in the top 38. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty hard to make a grade. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty hard to mess that up. Um, but for, again, for Carolina, I, I think that, you know, pretty productive weekend. Uh, I think they got. Uh, some players who, well, at least I think I know they got a blue chip, in my opinion, a blue chip prospect. And then I think they also, uh, there's some upside there with their day three picks. Uh, and uh, we'll see how the quarterback does. But for now, I think it was a successful weekend. And as we look forward to 2022, uh, this team uh, needs to show that they can produce on the field as well. So uh, again, we'll get into some more post-draft analysis. And you know, throughout the summer months, we'll continue to analyze this team as news pops up uh any final words from you john yeah it's a good draft like you said they did a good job of fortifying a need early on and you mentioned blue chip i I agree with you i think they've got a tackle they can lean on right away and that to me was a defining moment for them in terms of okay are we gonna try to lean on a quarterback at six and go you know and there was even talk about trading back in the teens and going trevor pinning and then hoping they could grab uh, mid-range quarterback. I'm glad they didn't do that. Aquanu is, is to me, a kind of a bulletproof prospect. I mean, because like I said, you can left tackle him, you can left guard him, and in e- either scenario, you're probably going to end up with one of the very better players at that position, at least in your conference, if not league. So, yeah, if I'm a Panthers fan, I'm okay with everything they did. Now, now you got to go coach them up and, and see how they develop, and that's the next step. Special shout out to our guy, Salesman95. Keep pounding on Twitter. He wanted an offensive tackle for years and he got one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep, they finally did it. It's been a decade in the making. So, so good on them. Whether you're a world class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well being and proper recovery for top notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.